Welcome to the Forward 40 Podcast, where we highlight the experiences of 40 women of color on the rise in the nonprofit and social enterprise sectors. This is an ode to our foremothers, a healing circle of our unique experiences, and a bridge of insight and wisdom across generations. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Forward 40. Uh, today, we have a very, very powerful, inspirational guest with us in the, the guest seat. We have Sarita Stive. Uh, she is the co-founder and executive director of Operation Restoration in New Orleans. Welcome, Sarita. Thank you for having me, Imani. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so I came across uh, Sarita's work uh, and, and the work that I do, uh, because she was announced as being a LISC, uh, Local Initiative Support Corporation, Rubinger Fellow, um, which supports mid-level career community development practitioners to really further elevate the work that they're doing um, in their respective communities. And I was struck by just the, the her journey um, and also uh, her narrative. So. Um, I'm just going to jump right into it. Uh, so I, I did some, a little bit of homework and found that um, according to a report by Prison Policy, it noted that women's incarceration has grown at twice the pace of men's incarceration in recent decades and has disproportionately been located in local jails. And in a pr- prior conversation that we had, you know, the 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 visual that most people tend to get, unfortunately, when they think about justice reform and mass incarceration is one of a male population. Um, So very, very happy um, to have Sarita here with us. And um, she speaks affirmatively uh, by saying that I have an obligation to dismantle systems that were never built for us. The reason I do what I do is for those I left behind. So Sarita, can you tell us more about your journey and how Operation Restoration came to be and when did you conceive of it? Um, Sure. I don't know if I ever conceived of Operation Restoration as it exists today. It has really, you know, exceeded my expectations, but my journey began. um, I, I like to say that most women who end up in prison, their journeys begin at a really young age because most of us find ourselves in that situation due to trauma that, you know, was faced in childhood. And be that as it may, my trauma led me to prison at the age of 19. Um, and at the age of 19, I was sentenced to 10 years in federal prison, 20 years in state prison, and $1.9 million. And my institution um, also the same crime. Um, and I went to prison, I want to say maybe two days before my 20th birthday, and I was released uh, at the age of 29. So that's how my journey into the criminal justice system really began. Um, and upon release, what you say was absolutely the case that when we talk about incarceration and services and resources, we tend to focus on men, specifically black men, and not even taking into account that over the last, you know, 20 years, the incarceration of rate of women has risen yes. 800%, mm-hmm. you know, and really, really not really focusing on resources and ways that people need 
services once they're released. So when I was released, there really wasn't any services available to me in New Orleans. And it was so polarizing because I was in the halfway house and service providers would come in and they would speak to the men. They would help the men with licenses and social security cards and all of these things because we all were returning to New Orleans post Katrina. And at that time, I think Katrina had only happened maybe three years prior to me being released. And so the city that I knew no longer existed. And then I did not have any help um, to ground me in my community and to get the resources that I needed. So it was very, very difficult. So as I grew and I progressed in my life, I ended up going back to college and graduating from college. I still always had this, you know, desire to like make sure that any woman who was released from prison didn't have to go through the hardships that I went through. Mm. And informally, I had been helping, you know, ever since I've been released. But the organization um, received a nonprofit status in 2016. And that is when we really begin to organize uh, in the state with other former incarcerated women to build out Operation Restoration. Wow. Wow. Uh, well, thank you uh, just for your commitment to the work um, that you were able to turn your lived experience into further impacting the lives of other women um, that need it uh, and need to feel whole and, and restored. Um, back in, into their communities. Um, if you could reflect on the organization from, I guess, prior to 2016 um, to now, what is one success that you hold on to as a guiding light? And um, I guess also like a challenge that you wish you were more prepared for to tackle? So I guess the success is um, when I was released from prison, I was then had the opportunity to go to college. Um, I don't know if everybody knows, but on most college applications, there's also a box, much like on employment as, um, applications or housing applications that ask, have you been convicted of a, a crime or a felony? And there's no consistency to the question. It depends on where you're applying, if there is a question, but the question does exist. And um, I didn't have a plan B. My plan was to get out and go to college graduate because I always knew that education for me was very important and I thought that education would be the key for me to have a successful reentry. Mm. And when I was able to apply to school upon my release, I was denied entrance into the University of New Orleans, even though I had a 3.875 GPA with college courses that I took while I was incarcerated. Wait, say that, say, um, say, say that again now, a 3 point what? Eight. 75 GPA. Wow. <laughs> and I had 30 credit hours um, upon release from prison. Tallahassee Community College used to come into the prison mm -hmm. and teach courses. And um, had I not been able financially through money from my parents um, helping me, I would not have been able to even take those classes, you know, while we were incarcerated. So that's like a whole different topic. Mm -hmm. But um, when I got out, my plan was to go to school and finish and get my degree. And I couldn't prove it at the time, but I knew that because I checked that box, that was why I didn't get into mm -hmm. the University of New Orleans. So two years later, I was married and I was pregnant with my son. And my um, husband at the time was like, you've always wanted to go back to school. You should try again and go back. And I was like, wow, they're just going to deny me again, you know, whatever. But I went ahead and I filled out the application. But this time I used the same exact application that I had applied with two years prior mm. and reapplied 
the only thing I did was uncheck the box. And I got in. I got scholarships. And um, that was a very eye-opening experience to me that, you know, when you get sentenced to do time and, you know, you go in front of the judge, like, they never tell you all of the other things that you're losing as well. Mm-hmm. Like your right to housing, your right to education, you know, your right to vote. They're on, like, those are the things that are the unmentioned consequences of also having a felony conviction, but that process really changed me and spurred on um, some legislation that we passed in Louisiana in 2018, where uh, we found other women who had the same stories and we mobilized and we were able to pass legislation in the state of Louisiana in 2018, making Louisiana the first state to remove that question off of college applications um, for purposes of admissions. A public university can no longer ask the question in the state of Louisiana, and that made Louisiana the first state to pass that type of legislation, and it was passed unanimously through the House and the Senate. And um, since then, we've been able to pass it, working with other formerly incarcerated folks on the ground mm. in the state of Maryland, the state of Washington, the state of Colorado. And right now, currently, we have bills in front of the legislatures in Kentucky, California, um, in Virginia. Wow. Congratulations. Congratulations. And also it's just the, the power that, and the authority that's within you that just by not selecting that box, like I imagine that there was a point of fear, um, possibly trepidation of, you know, what would happen and the fact that you were still bold enough, uh, and courageous enough to, to do that. And, um, that has truly shifted the course of the impact that you have been able to to make. Um, it was it did hang over my head and it was very um, hard, but I was more afraid of the statistics that were associated with black males who had a parent who were incarcerated mm-hmm. and their level of education. So at that time, I went back to school. I was five months pregnant with my son, and um, you know I refused to let him be a part of the statistics. So I had to make sure that I did what I needed to change the trajectory of his life. So I was more afraid of that statistic mm. than I was of being found out. Yes, yes, that's powerful. That's powerful. Um, so, you, you know, we, we briefly talked about this, like the dismantling of systems. Um, and when you're working within um, entity, whether it's like nonprofit or uh, like grassroots organization, and, you know, these systems have been designed uh, to um, either be demoralizing or dehumanizing um, and also have people on, on, on the margins. Um, how have you managed to create agreeable or complementary partnerships in lieu of that? I think the way that I'm able to create those partnerships is I don't come to the table um, in any other way than myself. You know, I show up with an abolitionist mindset in front of me. Everyone who invites me into a room or has me to speak or talk or whatever it is know that my end goal is to abolish all systems, schools, hospitals, and jails, prisons, everything that is built upon white supremacy that was built to educate, um, treat illnesses um, of, you know, white men, um, I just, we need to reimagine what that could look like, right? So um, there's no need to reform and fix it because we can't. Mm. We also have to learn how to alleviate suffering while we are moving toward that longer goal. Um, A lot of my 
people in the movement think it has to be one or the other. And I never lose sight of how it felt to be incarcerated. And I know that it can't be one at the expense of the other. Like I have to work to alleviate the suffering while I'm working on my longer term goal of abolition. So um, I always show up in that mind frame and in in that manner. And I'm always available to take the wins that we can take Mm. while, um, you know, along the longer course. Um, One thing that we really employ inside my organization is, is that if we work to in systems and we really believe in financial equity and true equity and we don't believe in, I know earlier you said dehumanization, but it's really destruction, right? Mm. If we don't believe in the destruction of individuals, like what practices are we reinforcing inside of our own nonprofit and community-led organizations that perpetuate this same culture. So, you know, one thing that I um, am very, you know, like adamant about is anyone who comes and they join the organization, we take them through a process of formalizing their own, you know, LLC so they can do business as themselves. And if someone is seeking them out to speak on a particular topic or they have a particular expertise, and it may be the expertise that I went after them for, why would I, as the organization, retain that intellectual property and continue to profit off of the work of these individuals? If my true goal is financial equity and financial sustainability and building people up who have been um, dehumanized and have been subject to destruction of who they are in their lives, why would I participate in it? So one thing that we do in particular that I really love in the organization is when people go out to speak, they retain their own speaker fees. If they, you know, create uh, a concept or a curriculum or anything, they retain their own intellectual property Mm -hmm. and the organization will partner with them in order to use their intellectual property while promoting whatever it is. So my goal is always to lift up and support other formerly incarcerated women to be successful, you know, and that doesn't necessarily always mean staying in the organization and letting the organization grow off of them. Mm, 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 mm. I just need a a moment. That was just (laughs) amazing Um, because so often um, there, I was just actually having a conversation with a colleague recently about um, knowledge retention uh, and, and and management and how um, people use you know the term knowledge is power knowledge is power and actually it is um, and people profit off of other people's knowledge other people's experiences and I commend you uh, and the organization for. Um, seeing the bigger picture and the collective movement with that shared knowledge um, and not feeling as though you have to covet it um, in such a way that um, further, as you as you mentioned, um, uh, destroy, destruct uh, those women uh, and their ultimately their their families and their communities. Um, in terms of this team uh, that you have that's representative of the organization's mission, um, they're either, you know, it's the organization is created by um, someone who has been formerly incarcerated, and then you also have staff that are representative of those that have been formerly incarcerated. 
uh, with those identities and those lived um, experiences like directly reflected in the work, how are you able to lead your team um, so that they feel whole while they're doing the work? And then also how do you as a leader make sure that you're restored? <laughs> so, so for my, for my team, team, I always, I always try, try to acknowledge them, them and, and let them know that I appreciate them, them and knowing that the work is hard. hard. Um, I, I believe in, you know, paying people, people their, their work. work. I, I believe in making sure, sure people have, you know, time off, off and working with them. One of my partners in this work, you know, her mom is sick and she leads our immigration work and she also does a lot of our programs, programmatic oversight, and her mom was sick. And her mom was in Peru, you know, and she was like, Sarita, you know, I have to go and check on my mom. She was like, I'm going to be gone for a month. I'm like, cool, as long as you can work remotely, you know, how about to look at some prisons in Peru and make contact with those women who are incarcerated in Peru and see if there's an opportunity for us to be supportive and build. You set your meetings up, you know, and we'll make it work. So, so really, really like, like supporting, supporting them and not, not making, you know, you know the, women the women feel like, like they have to choose one or the other. other. We, we often have children in the office, you know, we're moving into a new office space and we're going to have a, a room dedicated to the children because we all know when school is out and all these other things that go on, you know, we often as women are stuck with trying to figure out what childcare should look like. Um, um, you know, you know I, don't I don't always go in when we're hiring folks to talk about how much we're paying, but more so talking about the benefits, especially for directly impacting former incarcerated women. You know, we have an awesome medical plan that allows you to take advantage of counseling services. We have an amazing dental plan. We have a 401k. We have all of the benefits that people who are formerly incarcerated, A, may not know anything about. And B, really, really need those services that don't even know how to um, request them or even take advantage of them. So we give a full list of all the things that are available um, benefit-wise when you join the organization. Another thing is that we all understand that we're damaged and we were broken and that we're all on a path to restoration. And we are tolerant of one another. You know, we're like a family and all of the full-time staff members in the office are women, and that provides a certain amount of comfortability, you know, in the office space. And then the other thing, you know, I always preach a culture, the culture of, uh, for me, myself, you know, I had an early experience when I was younger, my teen years, I loved sports, always wanted to either be in sports medicine or sports cast or something having to do with sports. And I would see Pam Oliver on, on the news all the time. You know, she was there. She was there. And one day I said to my mom, I was like, yeah, when I grow up, I'm going to take her job. And my mom looked at me and my mom was like, why would you want to take her job? Why would you not want to work with her? You know, and what that lesson taught me really early on is that society and the culture and the way that we are brought up, you know, really from a young age makes us feel like there's only one woman of color um, in a in room that there's space for, that if I walk into a room with another woman of color who's in a position of power, she is my competition in this room, and I must remove her in order to be in this room. And then women who have been in the room for a really long time feel like this young woman coming in this room is my competition, so I'm going to make it hard for her because it was hard for me. So, so one, one thing that, that I've done and I've also encouraged my staff to do is that we all know that we're, you know, in our, in our own, own right. right. So, so we, we need, need to be, be um, 
compassionate for our sisters when we walk in the room and we don't engage in competition with other black women. You know, you know, and if, and if she needs the floor at that particular time, we are going to have the compassion and give it to her at that particular time because we know who we are in our own right and who we are and what we are will come to life, you know, eventually. So I think that having that care and compassion for black women just allows them a, a space of, you know, okay, I don't have to fight this woman at this particular time. Well, having that culture on the inside as well, I feel is tremendously helpful. Yes, and um, I have, I've witnessed that, um, you know, just the the feeling and the sentiment of whether it's a, you know, an elder or foremother that may feel a sense of, you know, intimidation or feeling threatened just by your sheer existence walking in the room or being in the room. and then also others, maybe just even in the peer group that may feel like, oh, well, it's just only like two or three of us. So um, someone has to be someone has to to be the one to, that shines a, a, above them all instead of, as you mentioned, you know, owning that power um, and owning that right and providing that space um, for for all to have a, a seat at the table and then also contribute Um because everyone has a story, everyone has a testimony, and everyone brings uh, jewels and treasures uh, to the work. Um, I guess for those that are conflicted, uh, because that's a that is a very introspective um, leadership style, Sarita. For those that are, I guess, cautious uh, about how to do that or um, hesitant, what is one step that? you feel that we could take to, to remedy that sense of competition? That's the, the remedy, remedy, the only remedy, remedy is, is, is that, that when you recognize that's, that's what it is, is, you choose whether or not you're going to participate, mm-hmm. right? right. Um, um, and, and I have I chosen time and time again not to participate. And the reason why I choose not to participate, and it hasn't always been that way for me, so I'm not going to stand here and tell you other listeners that, oh, you know, I'm just so introspective and all of this, but what I have evolved into um, the older I get is learning how to search for compassion every single day um, and also giving the compassion that I wish that someone would have given to me. Because if I recognize that if this culture of competition really has nothing to do with me personally, nothing to do with me personally and who I am, because most of the time we don't even know each other. Um, and if it has nothing to do with me personally, then I should not take it personal. And it is so much easier for me to choose not to engage than to show out, you know, show up another woman or show out in that particular manner. And why can't I give her the courtesy that I wish someone would have given me, you know, then? And um, so I think it's really, really simple. It's like you have a choice about what you want to participate in. And if you always just keep first and foremost that it's not personal, I think it allows you to stay a healthy space away from getting angry and upset or allowing it to bring up whatever feelings of our insecurities that you may have. Because a lot of times that's why we get into you know, you know, the, the, the match, match or the dance, dance with, with the, the other individuals individual because, because it evokes some type of insecurity in you. You don't want to be perceived a certain way or you don't want anybody to think that you 
are unintelligent or that you're a pushover, you know, so that is why you respond, not because that individual is actually doing harm to you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, now, it's been about a little over four years because, of course, you know, like you, you've been doing this work for some time, um, specifically with Operation Restoration. What are you hoping uh, to do with the work over the next year? What I know, and I believe in my soul, is that women all over this world are suffering. So it is my hope that we are able to reach all women and girls who have been incarcerated and um, jailed in whatever way, you know, that that may be. And what really brought me to that perspective was I've always wanted to end the incarceration of women and girls, but I didn't really know how many women and girls that entailed, right? Until in Louisiana in 2016, 2017, the Justice Reinvestment push chain where they wanted to decrease the amount of people that they had in prison because Louisiana led the world in incarcerating the most people per capita, you know, so anywhere in the world. And I didn't believe that Louisiana had the worst residents in anywhere, but we, that's how we showed up for the rest of the world, you know? So once we were able to get the justice reinvestment, um, bills and language and all these criminal justice reform bills passed, and the prison population decreased, what happened was Louisiana then became the second state behind Texas holding ICE detainees. So the beds that were being used and eliminated for people being incarcerated was then being turned over um, to ICE for ICE detainees and ICE facilities. And what that showed me was is that we didn't do anything but place suffering upon someone else. Mm. And if I truly believe in abolition, I also have to look at people who are being held because they're being persecuted in religious freedoms or because they are women or because they're located geographically in a particular area, people who are undocumented, whatever it may be. Um, I have to also include those people in the fight. So um, I learned, you know, some time ago that the change, you know, has to start in the South. And once the South has changed, there goes the world. But I also have to remember that I have women and girls, sisters all across the world that are suffering in the same manner. So it is my hope and my prayer that we are able to expand internationally um, to start working with women and girls everywhere. And I support you in that hope uh, and that prayer for sure. Um, in terms of your tea affirmation, I mean, you've dropped a lot of wisdom and insight um, for for the audience to hold on to um, as kind of like a close to to our time with each other. What would you What would you share? I would just share that. Um, you can't, you can't allow, allow anybody, anybody to write, write your, your path, path in life. Mm -hmm. um, if, if you, you listen, listen to individuals and all you hear is what, what you can't, can't do, then the list of things that you regret and the list of things that you can't do will just, just continue, continue to grow. grow. 
we all we should participate in like recalibrating our minds to not be negative, mm-hmm. but to see positive. And when and you start, start thinking about the things that you want to happen versus the things that can't happen, I think that you do a lot more in life, you know? And also just really understanding that setbacks are necessary to grow. And that a setback should not be looked at in a negative manner because albeit a setback, you would not have the growth. So um, I think we should all encourage, you know, setbacks and also understanding that every day that you wake up, you can reset. So um, that would be what I would leave. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, Sarita, I mean, it has been a pleasure. I definitely look forward to supporting uh, in the work that you're doing, the broader movement. Uh, for, for those that this may be new to them um, and want to support, want to get informed, what would you advise that they do? And also support the work of Operation Restoration. <laughs> so I was so going to say, of course, you can go on the website for Operation Restoration. It is www.or-nola.org. Um, and you can go on and see all of the programs. We have 15 programs that we work with. Another thing that we do is we support other formerly incarcerated women across this country to do their work. So we do fiscal assignments for other women in different localities to actually do work and provide programming that are similar to Operation Restoration in a multitude of different states. But I would just encourage you to, like, you know, support and allow formerly incarcerated folks to lead the work um, that is so important to them. So you so can you always can reach out, out to us if you're not in Louisiana, and we will help you to find what your desire is in, in different states, states um, if we have partners in different states. And then also just um, taking the time out to find out what's going on in your area um, as it relates to people who are being released from prison because it's affecting everybody. So I would implore people, you know, and if you're a teacher and you are retired or you're a teacher and you have some extra time, volunteer to go and teach at you know, you know, GD classes to people who are formerly incarcerated or partner with organizations that are doing that things or teach financial literacy to people who are being released from prison. You know, you, know, you just you never know where a kind act can change someone's life. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, and cheers to all the work that you are doing, that you will continue to do, uh, your authenticity in it as well um and to your team uh because i know that you're you're not alone and you there are several um legs that you're standing on those that came before you those that are alongside you um and those that will come later on so thank you sarita thank Thank you for having me mommy until we connect again sip sis say share and continue to serve.